This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable with me, Ros Taylor. Coming up on today's show, you're not welcome anymore as his new aides Guto Hari and Steve Barkley give the PM the time and space he needs to transform Britain. We take a look at what happened to ordinary people who broke lockdown rules. We ask why Cressida Dick is still in charge of the Metropolitan Police. Plus, why is the cost of living rising so fast and can the government do anything about it? And we'll be asking our panel if Facebook is still part of their lives, or if they are ready to join the Zuckerberg-designed Metaverse. All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. Mieta van Buller is Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation. Mieta, welcome to the Bunker. Thanks for having me. Last week, Michael Gove released his long-awaited Leveling Up White Paper, all 305 pages of it. Was there anything in it that showed the government might be getting to grips with inequality in the UK? So I think if I'm being generous, I'd say the two things that did signal a change or an improvement is, one, he talked about these 12 missions, and that is an advancement because it means that the government is thinking about inequality in a wider way. Um, And actually, you saw metrics like healthy life expectancy, well-being all put in there. So it feels like the government has finally recognised that actually, if it wants to improve people's lives, it needs to do more than just grow the economy. It's got to try to improve living standards. So I think that was um, a positive. I think the second positive is... There was definitely a lot on devolution. You know, Michael Gove talked about a devolution revolution. And again, this is a shift from, you know, Westminster and Whitehall desperate to cling on to power. And in the end, you can't change places unless you put power in the hands of the people that understand their patch. We'll see whether it plays out in substance, at least in rhetoric terms, I think a step in the right direction. So there's a kernel of something there. But the New Economics Foundation has released your own report on how to really level up the UK. How would you do it differently? What are your big ideas, just briefly? I know you haven't got time to explain them all here. So briefly, the one thing we would do is not level up on the cheap, which is a big thing that the government is trying to do. And there is no way you can close the divide between places and people unless you invest. But I think the sort of three things I would point out is... One, for us, it is a story about living standards, and that takes you to incomes. You've got to try to lift up people's incomes. But it's also about the things that people call social infrastructure, that's your public services, your facilities, the things that determine the social fabric of a place. I think the second thing I'd say is we talk about the everyday economy. You know, that's jobs that are in care, retail, hospitality. And actually, if you look across the country, they make up about 63% of jobs. But very rarely when government's thinking about economic development policy or local economic policy, do they think about how do you drive up wages? How do you drive up productivity? How do you create good jobs in these sectors that exist in every single locality? And then the final two things I'd say is 
You've got to go big on SMEs. You know, in some parts that need levelling up, they count for two thirds of jobs. And then the final thing for us is go green. I was quite shocked that the white paper didn't have more. We're going to have to get to net zero. We know we're going to have to invest. Why not align that with boosting incomes and chucking money into places in order to allow those places to revive? And for some reason, the government seems to have missed a trick on that. We'll be talking about the cost of living crisis in a lot more detail later on. But also with us, we have the Independence political sketch writer, Tom Peck. Welcome back to The Bunker, Tom. Thank you for having me, as always. Last Thursday, four senior advisers left number 10, including the head of policy, Munira Mirza, the director of comms and the chief of staff as well. Mirza is probably the most interesting one because she'd worked for Johnson since 2008 and you'd think that she had the measure of him. Was it the Jimmy Savile smear of Keir Starmer? Was that the last straw for her, do you think? Well, I don't know for certain, but I think what's clear is that Boris Johnson, as he sort of said himself only a week ago today in the House of Commons, you know, I get it, I will fix it. And then he's done the brave and noble thing of making sure of, of effectively sacking everybody else apart from himself. Um, and as you say, Manira Merz has been with him for a long time um, and is no, is no stranger to um, an edgy comment herself. Um, the, whether or not she found the Keir Starmer thing so unpalatable that she walked, um, that's what she said. Of course, if you're, if you're in that building, that which has become and still is, entirely dysfunctional and you feel like Boris Johnson is going to sack absolutely everyone or, or, or machinate against everybody, absolutely everyone to save his own skin, then you have plenty of motivation to strike first, if you like. She deliberately sought to do as much personal damage to him as she could by writing what she wrote for The Spectator. It seems like it's raw politics more than I'm so affronted by this thing that you've said, which is, which is it, it, by no measure worse than some of the things that he said in the 14 other years that, she, that you say, you're, you rightly say she's been with him. Well, his new director of comms is Guto Hari, a former BBC journalist. And he arrived at number 10 on Friday and he gave a somewhat surprising account of his encounter with Johnson. There was some banter, wasn't there? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I mean, day one, um, and he's clearly he's decided that at the end of two and a half, two and a half full months of rows about the fact that number 10 appears to have been turned into a sort of rolling... Club 1830s venue through an entire <laughs> pandemic in which no one's allowed to meet anybody else. He just decides that what Downing Street is in desperate need of at this particular time is just this sort of absolute king of banter. He, he, he arrives on day one with his Tesco carrier bag and says to the press, oh, it's bottles of mineral water. Oh, you know, it's not a suitcase of wine, don't worry. I mean, hilarious. <laughs> and, then he, and, then, and, then, and then it turns out he's given this interview to the Welsh language website and um, on, his, on, on his first day in the job, the country is sort of forced into this debate, which is ongoing, as to the precisely accurate Welsh translation for clown. Like, did, did, he, did, he, did he merely say he's not a complete clown or did he say he's not all that clownish? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an epic first start. It's sort of on Scaramucci levels. And he, he, only, he only lasted nine days, didn't he? I suspect Guto Hari might break that record, but who knows by how much. <laughs> Our guest today is Tristan Kirk, the Quartz correspondent for the Evening Standard. Welcome to the bunker, Tristan. Hello, thanks very much for having me. 
Last week, several Insulate Britain activists were jailed over M25 climate change protests. These are the people who glued themselves to the tarmac and infuriated many, many motorists as a result. Several of them said they'd do it again, and indeed they glued themselves together outside the High Court to make that point. This is a remarkably determined group of people, isn't it? That's right, it is. And, and it's a group that doesn't look like um, ending their, their protests and demonstrations and direct actions anytime soon. Uh, they, they obviously, they broke the injunctions that were trying to stop them from blocking the M25 and then uh, came to the High Court. And in, instead of sitting through the, the court hearing and, and getting to the end of it and seeing if they were actually going to prison, uh, four of them left, went outside, glued themselves together on the steps. And, and I think that was the sort of the catalyst for the judge saying, well, you, you can go off to prison. But a lot of them, when they were offering mitigation or explanations or, or, or addressing the court, said that they didn't regret doing it at all. And, and given the chance, they would, they would do it again. And one of the many, many things that the new policing bill does is crack down even further on this, this type of protest, doesn't it? It does. The the government's introducing a, a, a whole raft of new measures in the, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which would give the police powers to, to uh, crack down, if I can use that word, on all kinds of different protests uh, and, and even further than just uh, cracking down on the protests. It gives them new powers to, to stop people perhaps if they're they're heading towards a protest and to detain them and to stop them. I, I, I think that there are measures in there that would seek to to tackle people who are carrying glue uh, in, in a bid to stop them attending a protest and therefore gluing themselves together. And I think carrying a bike lock uh, with intent to protest is going to become something that people can potentially be, be arrested for. So there, there are a lot of new measures and it remains to be seen whether, whether all of them get all the way through Parliament or whether the MPs um, kick them out along the way. I can see that being very difficult to police and we'll be talking about that later. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the podcast, here's a small reminder that you can help The Bunker to keep on keeping on by supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Listeners like you are the bedrock of what we do. So if you find the podcast useful or you just like us venting on your behalf, why not back us for as little as £2 a month? You'll get early episodes without ads, merchandise and all kinds of extras, plus our undying gratitude. Search Punker Patreon Podcast to find out more or follow the link in the show notes. Have you got £693 to spare? You'd better hope so, because last week the energy regulator Ofgem raised the energy price cap, and a typical household will have to find a 54% increase in their bills from April. The government announced a few measures that they say will help cover some of the rise, but the Bank of England has warned of the biggest fall in living standards for more than 30 years. And if you were hoping to get a pay rise to cover it, forget about it. The governor of the bank has asked you not to ask for one, in order to avoid the dreaded wage price spiral where inflation keeps going up. Mieta, what help is the government actually offering households? So the first thing I'd say is that the squeeze on families they're about to see is going to be absolutely staggering. Um, And, you know, it comes off the back of 10 years in which actually living standards barely budge. So this is pretty, pretty 
remarkable stuff. And you'd expect the government's response to match the scale of the challenge. But what they're proposing is essentially three things. You already can tell um, how uh, impressed I am by their package. But their three things are a £200 loan um, this year that would essentially be clawed back um, £40 a year, Um, a council tax discount of £150 that would come in effect in April for uh, people who are paying council tax in band A to D, Um, and then a discretionary £150 million to essentially help all those people who either don't pay council tax and they're being hammered, um, or people in higher bands that are still uh, have modest income and are really struggling. Uh, But that's not a lot of money. I think the big thing I'd say is that, you know, you compare what we are doing with, for example, what some other countries are doing, and it feels like a really miserly response. Uh, And it sort of feels like the Chancellor, with all his riches, perhaps, hasn't quite grasped just how painful this is going to be for people um, and how absolutely profound. Because I think if he had, this is not the response he'd be providing. Yes, because we're not the only country, which obviously, which is suffering from high international gas prices. And in France, the government has set a lower energy price cap so that bills are actually only going up by 4% in France. Why haven't we done that? Or why can't we do that? Well, so I think the big difference is the EDF, which is um, the sort of major energy provider in France, is a state-owned company. Um, ironically, the same French state-owned company that operates here as a private um, operator, but let's park that for a moment. So actually, that has given Macron great uh, ability just to say, take the hit. You know, So they're taking an 8.4 billion um, euro hit. We don't have a you know state-run utility energy sector. But even within the private sector, the thing that I'm struggling is with is that there is an assumption that the price cap must go up. And that's in part because if you look at, you know, you've got retailers, so those are the people that sell you your energy, um, and then you've got the producers. And it's really tight for retailers. You know, they're really struggling. If you look at their margins, a lot of them are making negative profits, which is why Ofgem is saying we've got to raise prices. But we're not looking at the generation side. You know, we've already heard of Shell, but there are lots of other generators that are going to be making pretty, pretty hefty margins and profits. Why are we not applying a windfall tax on them so that we can use that in order to cross-subsidise consumers? And that's what I'm struggling to understand why the government won't do. And I can't help but think it's ideological, which is complete madness when you're seeing 54% increase in bills. And Labour wants to cut fat on gas bills. How much of a difference would that make? It's about 90 quid uh, difference that would make. Uh, So it would help in the margins, but it's probably not the biggest part of their package. You know, a lot of the heavy lifting of their package is done by extending, for example, the warm homes discount um, to about 9 million people that would generally have an impact and means that you you can sort of uh, cut bills uh, in total by about um, £600. So, I mean, the VAT move is something they can do, but... For me, I think there are other measures that would solve the problem much quicker. Uh, And by the way, the easiest measure is, particularly for those on low incomes, would be to increase universal credit. You know, the government is so queasy about doing this because it made that big error, and I think it was a massive error, uh, to cut universal credit by £20 a week uh, back in November. You know, that £1,000 that that was providing for the lowest uh, income households would have pretty much have covered the blow that's coming in terms of um, energy price rises and other price rises that households are going to have to absorb. And then on top of that, 
I would say you look at what you do with the cap. You know, you don't increase it as much. You ask producers to pay part of the pain and the state pays the other part of the pain. And that way you get to protect quite a lot of households, as well as providing providing targeted support for the lowest household. Tom, is this causing a lot of concern among Tory backbenchers? Yeah, I mean, it's a mess, isn't it? It's a horrendous mess. Um, And of course, we, as with almost all things, appear to be uniquely badly afflicted. Um, I mean, I think it's right that we sold off 70% of our gas storage facilities for 75 million quid a couple of years ago. Naturally, uh, the Tory backbench was very much behind that happening, but actions have consequences. I think that your average Tory backbencher can see that, um, as with with COVID, right, um, anything, anything that is an international problem has, it's very easy for the government to offer an excuse, but it is also very easy for a person to be able to benchmark how that go, how that how their own government is compare is is getting on with the problem compared to everybody else. If, if everybody faces the same one, and obviously Tory backbenchers um, post twenty nineteen have all been very keen Brexiteers, and it's not like they won't notice that you know this week Boris Johnson is put is put he's actually putting a minister in charge of. Brexit opportunities, isn't he? To try and find something, anything good to say about Brexit is really crucial. Meanwhile, lots of Tory backbenchers know that they're on record before 2016 saying, you know, saying that food will get cheaper, energy will be lower, household bills will be lower. Um, and I think they're clearly aware that if they're completely humiliated on these promises, then there'll be a lot of anger. I mean, Remainer anger is very much priced into their calculations and they've won an election by miles in the face of Remainer anger. But Brexiteer anger is going to be a big problem for them. You know, when you deal, when you have these problems, which basically in politics tend to affect lower earners, poor people, more than higher earners, and that's obviously the case here. But with energy bills, I mean, I saw Nick Hewer, of, of, you know, of Alan Sugar's assistant from The Apprentice, on the, who was multi-millionaire, on the TV the other day, saying that he's, he's expecting his gas and energy bill, he's really got a very large house, to go up to over £1,000 a month. Well, that is an enormous amount of money, even people who've got a lot of money. So there will be widespread anger from all sectors about this. Um, and, if, and if it affects everybody, then sure, there, there will be a, it's an enormous problem, which Tory backbenchers will not, will not really be able to take lightly or, or ignore or, or want it to go away. Well, I wanted to get into the detail of what happens with people who are struggling to pay their bills. There are three things they can do. I mean, they can cut back on everything else. That probably won't be enough for many people uh, because it means, in many cases, cutting back on essentials like food. They can go into debt and maybe use payday lenders and end up in vast amounts of debt, or you simply don't pay your bill. And for people who don't know what happens if you don't pay your bill, um, you have to try and agree a payment plan with the energy company. But if you can't keep to that, they will basically try to avoid disconnecting you, but they will install a prepayment meter in your home. And the problem with that is that uh, it costs a lot more than being on a standard gas or electricity contract. Are we going to see the true effects of this next winter, in fact, as, as people were really struggling when the, when, uh, the time of the year when gas bills go up? How, how do you think it, this will play out? Well, I mean, everyone is different. Uh, the vast majority of people will suck up the costs and be extremely angry about it. The very poorest people... Um, I, I mean, I already don't really know or understand how the very poorest people manage with energy costs as they currently are, which are 
astronomically expensive and have risen by such a huge amount already, even in the last five or six years. It's going to be appalling. There's never really been a cost of living increase on this scale, essentially overnight in two months' time, and the government clearly not doing enough to ameliorate, ameliorate for it. I imagine the consequences for some people will be absolutely appalling. Mietta, at the same time as energy prices are rising, national insurance is going up. Now, the government likes to say that contributions are going to rise by 1.25 percentage points from April. But that is a somewhat misleading way of putting it, isn't it? It is. It is. um, Because what they actually are doing is um, it's a 1.25% increase applied to existing rates that you're paying. So most people are paying about 12% which means their national insurance is going up to about 13.25%, which is about 10%. And this is something that Martin Lewis has pointed out, has asked um, HMT about, because it is deliberately misleading. Um, And the other thing I think is actually quite interesting is that, you know, for people who are earning over 50k, well, actually, your income over 50k, you're only paying about 2%. So the pain for those that are more well off is actually comparatively less than for those that are on lower or modest incomes. Um, And the final thing I'd say about this is that I'm definitely pro-tax. I think we need to fund uh, the health and the social care system, particularly after uh, the horrors of the pandemic. But this is not the way to do it at this time. Um, And I cannot understand why the government is doggedly pursuing this, you know, against a lot of opposition. The politics are very difficult for them when there are other options. You know, they could have chosen to raise the money that is absolutely needed for health and social care through other means by, for example, asking, you know, higher earners to pay more than that 2% on incomes over 50k, applying a tax on rental income by looking at tax on dividends and wealth. So there are lots of options open to them. And I think it is very, very telling that this is what they've gone for and, and that they just won't budge, despite the fact they're doing this at the worst possible time in the height of a cost of living crisis. Absolute madness. There's a real resistance, isn't there, for, to taxing assets, to ta- taxing things like property, which we in this country seem allergic to doing. Yeah, and, and it does feel ideological again, because when you look at the disparity between how much we ask someone that is, you know, earning uh, their income through pay and wages and how much we ask them to pay in tax versus how much we ask people who are earning their incomes from dividends or cattle gains. It feels very odd that the government and this chancellor in particular seems unwilling to do it. Um, and, And it does feel like a combination of vested interests and ideology that just feels completely out of place given the times. Tom, the furlough scheme made Rishi Sunak the most popular Chancellor for 40 years. Do you think that's going to last? Well, of course not. Um, Chancellors are always very popular when they're giving away what feels like free money, but of course it never is free money, it's just your own money. Yeah, nobody had ever really heard of him before he appeared on the TV at the start of a pandemic and said, hi, my name's Rishi, I'm going to be paying all your wages for the next couple of years. Um, But but, but that's, uh, that's done now. Um, and he's, um, I mean, I, I, I saw, I was reading an article just before we started recording, actually, um, in which the hypothesis being that he is at risk of becoming the sort of the Tories' David Miliband, if you like, in the sense that if he doesn't sort of get into number 10 now before the pain arrives, um, then maybe he'll miss his moment. And I think there's probably quite a lot to be said for that. 
is it maybe more likely that someone will emerge as Johnson's successor who hasn't been tainted so much by the Johnson by being part of the Johnson administration? Well, I, I don't, I don't think so. No, because I, I don't think Rishi Sunak really has been tainted by being part of the Johnson administration in much the same way that um, if, that Keir Starmer. I mean, if you look at look at what happened to a lot, so many of those Labour politicians and also Tory politicians during the the Corbyn and pre twenty nineteen years, where they all felt like they had no choice but to leave, and they've all sort of accidentally detonated their careers via three weeks in the Liberal Democrats and a load of other parties. Whereas Keir Starmer was right by. Jeremy Corbyn's side throughout that time and doesn't really, really appear to have been tainted by it. And I would say the same for Rishi Sunak. If Johnson is brought down over Partygate, um, it will be, it, the public will quite rightly see it as just one man's complete reckless um, style of government. And more than that, just just the the lies, if you like. If Johnson goes because of, because of Partygate, I don't think it will do much damage to Rishi Sunak. I think, I think what he'll find difficult is that I think people consider him to be the sort of, you know, ex-Goldman hotshot banker, although he isn't really. He just did a couple of years on the Goldman Sachs grad scheme. And people think he's the sort of intellectual ballast for Brexit, but he's never really provided any intellectual ballast for it, other than to say, um, oh, it will make us more nimble. And I think that actually Rishi Sunak is more lightweight than people tend to realise. And when you're in the very highest job, the glare of this from the public spotlight is that much more piercing and you do tend to get found out rather quicker tristan kirk is evening standards courts correspondent and he sees the pressure on the court system firsthand tristan thousands of people have been fined for breaking lockdown regulations tell us how that system works most of them don't end up in court do they well, that's right. So the, the rules that have been applied throughout the pandemic um, are, are wide and diverse, and I won't go into them now in, in, in any kind of detail, but the, the kind of things that people have been caught doing and, and prosecuted for can be broken down to maybe four categories. Uh, the first one is, is um, being in a gathering of, of too many people, essentially. Second one is is businesses which which opened up when they weren't supposed to or, or did things that were against the various rules that they were supposed to apply. There was uh, a third category of not wearing a mask on public transport. And then the fourth one is around the quarantine rules and basically not doing what you were supposed to be doing when travelling in and out of the UK. Now, there are uh, the latest figures that, that we have, which are a bit out of date, but something in the region of 120,000 people have been issued with fines uh, during the pandemic. An awful lot of them will have just paid that fine. Some of them haven't, and therefore their case ends up before the courts. And, and not normal courts, I might add. It's in something called the single justice procedure, which is an open court, but is, is where a magistrate sits with the, the papers in front of them, assesses the police evidence, looks at any uh, defence or, or mitigation that's been put forward, and in most cases then dishes out a, a fine uh, to the offender. And you tweeted a defence mitigation from a man who was fined for going to his allotment. Tell us about that. Well, that's right. I mean, looking at the court papers that I, I get hold of, um, what's uh, striking about the, the COVID offences is the varying different things that people ended up getting prosecuted for. So, But some of the things that people have been prosecuted for have uh, been for doing what would in, in normal normal times count as everyday activities. Uh, the, the guy I, I, I highlighted, he was uh, a 66-year-old from Deptford in South London, who was prosecuted for being at his allotment 
uh, where he went to collect some greens, um, some healthy food. Uh, he had some heart problems and he went down there. And the police were called along because there was a group of people on the allotment. Uh, they were seen to be having a drink and sat together. It's something that you they may well have done in normal times all the time, sitting together on the allotment in, in the outdoors. Uh, and they were then issued with fines and, and uh, prosecuted. Uh, other people have been um, caught out for uh, watching football matches together in the back of a, uh, a shop or something like that, or, or even just, just uh, standing together in the street. It, it, these prosecutions show just how seriously and strictly the police took those rules back in back in in, in the uh, in the early stages and throughout the pandemic when we were in lockdown you weren't allowed to go out without a reasonable excuse and and people were held to account for that although not so much if they were police working on the door of number 10 one assumes tom do you think there's an appetite among the public to see staff at number 10 getting fined as is a real possibility or do people buy the we were all working together anyway so they might as well have a drink together defense well there's an appetite for it now definitely the public are furious i mean i spend my all my life with my nose pressed right up against the glass of politics and most of what i do most of my sort of normal friends don't care about but now they just see a prime minister who's just lied and lied and lied about it for two and a half months, done anything to avoid taking responsibility for it. They've seen the escalation from there were no parties. I didn't go to any parties. I did go to a party, but I didn't realise it was a party. Oh, there was a party in my flat. And for most people, I think the point at which the line has been crossed on this is just the constant, constant being treated like a complete idiot. And they certainly want payback for that. Yes. Tristan, it's been a bit surprising, to say the least, to find that the Met is investigating lockdown breaches in a building that is probably the most heavily policed and guarded in the UK. Is that why the Met were reluctant to investigate these parties until Sue Gray's detailed report was in the offing? Or is there another reason why it took so long for them to act? Or is it simple incompetence? Well, it doesn't look good for the, the Met Police because they took so long to get to a point where where an investigation was actually reached. Uh, if we if we look at it fairly, the Met Police have, and all other police forces actually, have in, in investigated and prosecuted um, cases of lockdown breaking when they've actually caught people at the time. So a lot, a lot of the cases, you know, when, when the party's ongoing, the police officers have gone down there, they've broken it up, they've told everyone to go go home. Now, obviously, in, in anything that's gone on in Downing Street, that's not the case. Um, so so the, the, there is a sort of a, a little bit of understanding as why they didn't do that. The question of whether the police force, the police officers who actually work in Downing Street should have done something about it, I mean, that may be something that will come up as a result of Sue Gray's report. But I do do think I'd find it surprising if there are any police officers who work in Downing Street who took it upon themselves to to police the lockdown rules within Downing Street, because I, I think... Certainly from my point, I think a lot of people would have thought that the rules would have been adhered to within Downing Street and they shouldn't needed policing. So there we are. We've got an investigation now and and the Met are are going to look into these things. And I think that's, that's, that's quite right because... All of the the sort of the explanations that have come out so far and the excuses, if we can call call them that, are actually mirrored within the court 
papers that I've seen and the prosecutions that I've seen. So the idea of of um, colleagues being at work and then going somewhere to have a drink after work, well, it, it might be inconvenient and unfortunate for Downing Street, but that's exactly the kind of thing that people have already been prosecuted for simply because you weren't allowed to do that. You weren't allowed to go out socialising I don't know whether in the, in the fullness of time there will be a, a distinction drawn between the garden at Downing Street and, and you know, the, the sort of the beer garden down the road from wherever somebody worked. But it's just a, a, an inconvenient fact for the people in government that people have already been prosecuted and, and have got criminal records as a result of breaking the rules in, in what you may look at as a, a minor breach or something that's understandable. Nevertheless, it led to a criminal prosecution. Bieta, some senior police did complain at the time of lockdowns that they didn't want the job of policing public health regulations, basically, and they warned that it would make them deeply unpopular with the public. Do you think, in retrospect, that the government should have introduced a level of legal restriction and control that it did? Could we have managed with guidance instead, where the police would go in and, say, break up parties or warn people, but not criminalise lockdown breaches in this way? Gosh, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, my, my sense is that the kinds of measures that were being put in place were so extreme for us. They were so against anything that we'd ever experienced and thought of that you probably needed some sanction because I think if it had just been guidance at that point when, you know, if you remember, we were still coming to terms with this, we were still trying to understand, you know, how lethal this virus was, the impact of it, lockdowns were the most alien things. I think if you didn't have that sanction in order to shift behaviour, I'm not sure it would have stuck in exactly the same way. And I think it would have been just as much of a nightmare to police um, than the sanctions um, that the police then had to uh, with sort of legal force. I mean, for me, history will tell whether it was the right thing to lock down or not. um, But it's all we had when a lot of people were dying against the virus that we didn't have a vaccine uh, in order to protect ourselves. And I, I don't think that the measures, I don't think the rules were the problem. I think, you know, it was the fact that the guy at the top couldn't be bothered to follow the rules that the rest of us were following and then subsequently lied about it. Tristan, let's talk about the bigger issue of the problems in the court system and jury trials in particular. I think that's where the worst backlogs in the justice system are. How long are some people waiting to get justice now? Yes, well, we've we've got something in the region of sixty thousand cases in the in the criminal justice backlog. Which, to put it in context, um, uh, just before the pandemic began, it was somewhere around uh, thirty-four to thirty-seven thousand. What this all means is that uh, some people, uh, victims, uh, witnesses, defendants, as well, are waiting maybe two years. To, to get to a trial, sometimes e- even longer than that. Take it a, a, one of the worst cases. Uh, you could have somebody who was uh, the victim of a crime in, say, 2018, where it takes the, somewhere around two and a half years to come to the decision to actually prosecute the case and charge somebody. And then it has to go through the court system and another two and a half years waiting for a trial to take place. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at a, you know, a 2018 crime, which is only coming to trial in 2023, which is a really extraordinary place to be, frankly. Have the government done anything to try and clear this backlog? Well, the government 
are putting a lot of money in now. Um, there are hundreds of millions of pounds uh, going in to try to tackle the, the backlog. And uh, through the hundreds of millions of pounds that are going in, they're hoping that by March 2025, that backlog will be down to 53,000, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, and with the, the context I set before, is still a huge number of cases in the system. The problem is that the, over the 10 years or, or so uh, from 2010 onwards, there were an enormous amounts of cuts to the criminal justice system in, in all, on all levels of it. And so it, we've got to a point now where we've sold off half of our courthouses in the country. Things have been cut back to the bone. Then the pandemic has hit and made things an enormous amount worse. And so the, the, the scale of the challenge now is is, is enormous and, and, and pretty overwhelming at times. And so what, what it all means is that people will have to wait months and months, if not years and years, for them to get any kind of justice. The Met has had a bad couple of weeks with revelations about the way they treated a woman in custody. In 2013, they stripped off her clothes and mocked her. And the police watchdog also found that officers at Charing Cross Station had joked about rape and made racist remarks on chat apps. Yeah, so how do you feel about the Met at the moment? You know, I've always assumed that you know, broadly, there are bad eggs, but the police are the good guys. Um, I, I'm not, I've never really felt threatened when I saw an officer in the street. And I've been really shocked, been really taken aback by it's just a series of things that have hugely knocked my confidence. You know, I, you know I, I, I'm now not feeling like they're the good guys. I'm now thinking there's something uh, systematic and, you know, hugely cultural, um, which is a I think a real problem, and in the end, our police force—you know—they they, they police by consent. They police police because they have public confidence. They police uh, because they have public trust. And if someone like me that wasn't ever that suspicious, perhaps I ought to have been, but I wasn't, is now really questioning. I think that probably is reflective of how a lot of people, particularly a lot of women, feel. Um, and I think it's hugely damaging. And unless they're feels like there's some sort of reckoning that actually there's a recognition that there is a structural problem with the Met Police, um, whether it's misogyny, racism, but there is something endemic in the culture that needs to be shaken up and dealt with. I think they will lose public trust and it becomes incredibly hard to police unless you're policing by force. And I just don't believe that is an effective uh, course of action in this country. And it's not consistent with the, the culture in which policing has been done in the past. Tom, the woman responsible for the Met is the commissioner, Cressida Dick, and she seems bulletproof, doesn't she? She does. I mean, nobody gets to that high up in any organisation, be it the police, science, whatever, um, without being a pretty wily political operator. Um, I mean, I I find these questions quite difficult to answer. I mean, I'm a political sketch writer. I spend my life basically just slagging people off and not doing very much else. And I'm always (laughs) quite slow very slow, in fact, to slag off the police because I do think that they they are doing a very hard job and, by and large, a good job. Um, I think the Wayne Cousins, the Sarah Everard case is just the most devastating thing that could ever really happen to a police force. Um, it's the most one, truly one of the, the the most heinous crimes that has ever happened in the country. Um, I don't know how any um, chief of police can possibly deal with that and the damage that it does to trust and how and how hard it makes the job of policing when right thinking decent people simply don't trust a policeman that stops them in the street 
Um, and what was extraordinary was that when there was the, um, the vigil for the Sarah Everard case, and this is, came at the end of a month of, pro- of a whole summer of protests, it was the only one that was treated heavy-handedly. And then Cressida came out and doubled down, did she, and defended her officers. And, and I felt sorry for the officers because it's very hard dealing with a protest in the middle of a pandemic. And their health, literally their health is at risk too. Um, but the number of things she appears to have got wrong um, is remarkable. And, and with, the, um, with, the, with, the, with the Partygate stuff, the fact that she, the fact that the Met intervened when they did, delaying it to, to the extent that they did delay it when they, when they didn't want to investigate in the first place. Now, I don't think for a second that they're corrupt, but they have done very little to counter the, the most common sense explanation. The obvious explanation for what's happening there is that the police are acting to protect the prime minister. Now, I, think it, I don't think they're doing that because that would be such an appalling thing. But her job really is to try and reassure the public that that isn't what's happening. And that's not what's happened. Um, and, in, and in so many big things recently, it's very, very, very hard to defend her. Tristan, it doesn't seem like a good time to be handing more powers to the police. And yet that is what ha- is happening, isn't it? Well, it is. That's, that's what the bill before Parliament uh, gives them. It gives them a, a whole range of different tools to, to, to stop protests taking place, to break them up. I think that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of political weight going into the measures that are coming through Parliament to be, to be seen to be doing something about protests that are, are kind of hot topics for Conservatives. The, the environmental protests have, have led to a whole raft of new measures to, to stop people protesting about the environment. There's, there's even, I think, in, in the bill, um, the power for the police to, to stop a protest if it's going to be too loud which uh, which does seem like a really unmanageable uh, power for, for any police officer to be wielding. I mean, what, what exactly is too loud and, and who's making that kind of judgment? It remains to be seen whether the, whether the police forces will actually use these powers uh, that they're being, being handed, because as we've seen during the, the pandemic, particularly uh, the policing of protests is volatile um, for them on a public relations front. The, the Sarah Everard vigil was a complete disaster. Uh, when it comes to, you know, they've had in the past the, the, the idea of kettling protesters, and that became a very um, politically sensitive area. So I, I just, I think that whereas some police officers might welcome more powers to be able to do something about it, I think, I think that there'll be a level of, should we actually use these powers? Is that a proportionate measure to be doing? And what, what, kind, of, what kind of image will that reflect back on us? We've known for a while that Facebook users were getting older. It's been a long time since the platform felt new or cutting edge. But now, for the first time, it's reported a drop in active users. The share price of Meta, which owns Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, fell by about a third, and it hasn't shifted much since. I gave up on the platform during the first lockdown because I realised it was making me angry and unhappy, and that didn't feel a very good way to be at that time. Mieta, do you use Facebook? No, I, I'm a I'm a general social media disaster, uh, which my comms team will tell you with great horror, uh, and it's one of the things I have to get better at. But Facebook, not really. Um, but but sadly, I, I don't make enough time for it. Tom, did you or do you use Facebook? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I I joined Facebook what 15 years ago when I was 25. I mean, it was of course it was more fun 15 years ago, but then so was I. 
Um, I think that's what's. <laughs> I think that's the problem Facebook has had is that in its early days, when the, when the, the young people piled into it, you open it up in the morning and you see all these pictures of your mates having their bacchanalian nights out. But now all I see are sort of very tedious three-year-olds doing the things very tedious three-year-olds get up to. And it's all quite depressing. And I think the, the pipeline of young people that should have come up behind me and all having their fun and sharing it on Facebook just hasn't really happened because they've all gone elsewhere. I'm guessing we now will spend a lot more time on another meta product, WhatsApp. Tom, can you remember writing about politics before WhatsApp? I, I mean, I can, yeah. Um, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I just do the lols, though. I'm, I'm not a news reporter. And I think, it's, I think it's news reporters who it's changed everything for. I think what it's done is it's um, like the, the, the fundament, it hasn't changed the fundamentals of politics. It's just sped them up. It's just bang, um, you know, me- message out to everyone. Um, it's made coordinating everything and, and, and plotting everything and, and holding your position. And it's, it's made everything move so much faster. And that obviously has, um, has, has impact on the way politics gem- generally is. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's fundamentally shifted um, the way politics works in the, in the way that the internet and social media has. It's just, it's just made the old ways of doing business much faster. I remember when, as a journalist, we saw Facebook as a way to reach an almost unlimited audience. And Tristan, do you use it? Have you used it in your work? I, I don't really. The, the only way that I really use it and, and other measures of, of, of social media... Uh, in in my work is is to to look people up who are appearing in court. <laughs> my daughter has zero interest in Facebook, uh, but she I mean, yesterday she spent a few minutes criticising her classmates' latest TikTok, and then she asked me for about tenth time if she could download the app, which I have not let her do yet because she's only twelve. Um, are there any TikTokers on the pla- on the panel today? No, I'm afraid I've never opened TikTok. <laughs> Yeah, you've not even you've not even looked at TikTok on Twitter, which uh, is I mean, what many of us do. I've seen the occasional TikTok, but as far the only time TikTok really became a thing was in what was surely the worst twenty four hours of the pandemic, and that was the sea shanty twenty four hours. Oh God, yeah. Um, I mean, absolutely, <laughs> well, man, horri- yeah. just horrific. <laughs> oh God, just even the sound of the word, just horrific. Mayato, are you on TikTok ever? I'm showing my age. No, I've never even opened the app. Um, but I'm just I'm, I'm progressively working through it. You know, I'm, I'm down with Twitter, and <laughs> Instagram, and maybe TikTok when I'm far too old to go anywhere near it. But anyway, <laughs> well, speaking of the next thing, it feels as though Mark Zuckerberg himself is moving on from Facebook because Meta's focus is now on building the metaverse. Does that the idea of a Zuckerverse intrigue you at all, Yetta? I, I think it, it does, you know, because like all of it, social media has completely revolutionised the way that we absorb, the way that we communicate, the way that we interact. And I do think in a world where, you know, if nothing else, lockdowns, working from home has shown an entire different way of kind of working and playing. So I think it's interesting. Um, And, you know, I'm always a fan of seeing the boundaries that kind of technology can take us to. The thing I do at the same time feel nervous about is, you know, how how we police this stuff. I know I I often get criticised for wanting to regulate and police stuff, but, you know, this whole new world, which is completely dominating our interactions, is really poorly policed and regulated uh, to great harm to you know a lot of people and their mental health. And so by all means, I want to see how far we can take this. I find it exciting. But equally, we need policymakers and regulators to be 
up to speed on how you make it accessible, inclusive and safe? Well, Zuckerberg has been thinking about that because he wants to make the metaverse less creepy. And he, so he's bringing in a virtual bubble around the avatars. And so you won't be able to go closer than a certain distance to other other avatars in, in the metaverse. Presumably that means you won't be able to assault someone, for example, to other anything else that, you know, it, it might be offensive. Tristan, can you see a time when crimes are committed in the metaverse? Because we already have hate speech laws that apply online. But uh, do, do you get the sense that lawyers are beginning to think about this yet? Well, I think probably specialist ones are, but I think like like with many innovations um, over the last few decades, we'll we'll probably come to the idea of how and whether to police uh, things happening in the metaverse way, way too late uh, until things have already become entrenched. I mean, you, you just look at the, the, the evolution of the internet where it was left to grow and, and diversify and then the, the, the crimes emerged and it feels like we're only sort of now coming around to the idea of tackling things like online harms maybe there should be more thought goes into how to govern these kind of things these the, the, the one of the things that people um police forces and and, and law enforcement found, find so difficult about these developments is because they are international they're global there are no boundaries and so there doesn't appear to be any jurisdiction uh for a lot of the things that go on so yes things will happen i, I don't know how but it, there should be more thought goes into how to police it but for the moment, it's Mark Zuckerberg making the laws. So, <laughs> so if you were if you were writing Facebook's obituary, what would your verdict be? Oh, I mean, I, I thought you were going to ask me about about the metaverse. I actually have one of those Oculus Quest headsets. I've been in the metaverse. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I but, didn't realise. Tell but, us about um, your experiences in the metaverse. Um, What's it like? Well, I, I I bought it because um because I read a couple of articles about how you can do good exercise classes on there, um, and it was a bit of a New Year um thing that I was going to do. Um, and they are quite good, and but I've sort of fallen off the wagon already. Um, but despite having owned this thing for a month and a half, I still don't really understand or know where the metaverse bit of it is meant to be. And it's not, and it's not really. I mean, I, what, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I actually watched some football matches on there. I mean, I'm a West Ham fan, and what is quite strange is the Sky Sports camera, VR camera, totally coincidentally, is two rows behind where I normally sit. And I watched a game on there the other day, and I could see my mates just chatting to each other because um, they because they happen to be in the, they happen to be in the in the in the seats two rows ahead, which is extremely strange. But um, the the bit where you're sort of supposed to put an avatar on and go in and talk to other people, I don't really know where it is. I haven't looked for it. I don't really care. Um, and whilst I have been wrong about this stuff before, when I'm, I remember someone coming in to ex- explain Twitter to me in 2006, and I sort of opined that it was going to amount to nothing. Um, but it does strike me that this is. It really is bollocks. I mean, this VR headset stuff has been around for 25 years. I mean, I watched Nick, the FT interview Nick Clegg in the Metaverse, and it just felt like it would have been done a lot better and would have been a lot more enjoyable just not watching it in the Metaverse, i.e. just watching Nick Clegg be interviewed. That would have been absolutely fine. Current life, right, um, is already kind of semi-reality, semi-phone. You know, you walk around the real world and you stare at your phone. Um, that's proved to be a wildly popular way of living. I'm not sure like 100% phone, 0% reality. I I mean, I can't really see it taking off. I mean, even when I have been known to spend an hour and a half with my Oculus Questing on watching a football match, even that I find intensely irritating because I have to take it off if anyone texts me. Um, 
And that, I mean, I, I, I cannot, I, I, just, I just think this metaverse thing is, is um, Mark Zuckerberg's way of trying to rename his company and make it less toxic and do something about the fact that Facebook is dying on its ass. I, I, just, I cannot, I cannot see it, see it being the next big thing. Well, there you go. Mark Zuckerberg's <laughs> new venture, doomed. Facebook, doomed. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books, and maybe even parties that have transported our panellists away from the bruising world of politics? Mieta, what have you been up to? So this hasn't exported me from politics because it was right in it, but I thought it was very good, um, which is um, a BBC2 a uh, two-part documentary, The Decade, The Rich One, um, which which I, I was in, but that's not why uh, I thought it was good. I generally thought it told the story of the financial crisis, stagnating wages, the squeezing living standards, um, the, the, the gaping inequality in a really accessible, smart way, um, and pulled together lots of really complex things like quantitative easing into like quite a digestible way. So it's a plug because I generally think it's the, you know, I think the producers and the editors did a really great job um, and told the story through the accounts of lots of different people um, in quite a powerful way. Yeah, I thought you work hard. Tom, what have you been up to? Oh, I mean, I am completely culturally barren these days. I, I think I saw someone say recently that watching a film without looking your, looking at your phone is the modern equivalent of reading a book. And um, I, I'm, I, sort of, I must agree on that. Um, the one thing, I mean, I, we watched Mayor, this is not original, but we watched Mayor of Easttown not that long ago. And it was through that that, I mean, I know that this is probably not news to anybody, but I had not realised that Mayor of Easttown was very, very, very much based on the now quite old BBC drama Happy Valley. And that is excellent. One of the best things I've seen in years. P- apart from that, um, the, my big sort of pandemic thing that I got into quite tragically is gardening. Uh, and I had a wander around the garden this afternoon and seeing that it's found it quite strange, actually, because you see the buds appear on things that I planted just before the pandemic started. You know, like these, these, these plants are now getting into their third life cycle. And, um, like their third year and I've done absolutely bugger all for the entirety of their of their many goes <laughs> around the clock like I'm moving I my, my life moves slower than the seasons currently um but hopefully hopefully who knows that may change this year that is that it has to be this year that things get better Tristan how about you well, I'm, I'm uh, fairly bad for um, logging off from court and picking up a book on, uh, you know, uh, serious crimes or, or the most notorious serial killers um, or something like that. But uh, my, my wife has uh, led me on to a, a really good book that I've been actually listening to on, on Audible. It's um, Bob Mortimer, the comedian, and his autobiography. It's called And Away. And it's a really fun and poignant uh, journey through his sort of life growing up in Middlesbrough. And if you've ever watched him on uh, shows like What I Lie to You and uh, telling the stories of his past, well, it's just more of the same and, and thoroughly enjoyable. Well, I went to see Belfast before I went to self-isolation and it was fantastic. I was not expecting it to be that good or to be or to introduce me so thoroughly to an area of Britain that I knew very, very little about. And it's yeah, it was it was a real tearjerker and it was a great movie. Though I think there's been some some criticism that it might be a little basic and a little obvious, but I didn't find it that way. I, I loved it. Now the fact is Kieran Hines does look like quite a young Keir Starmer. And that was quite striking to me as well. 
And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Miata van Buller. Thanks for having me. Tom Peck. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And to Tristan Kirk. Cheers. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And don't forget a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday. Remember, if you liked this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right here in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers get a shout out at the end of the podcast and here are some now. Hello and many thanks from me to Jack Hobhouse and Patrick Diamond. Best wishes from me to Steve Parsons and Simon Shuttleworth. And it's a big thanks from me to Gregory Gulrajani and Christian DeFio. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Roz Taylor. The audio production from me, Robin Lee. The Bunker is produced by Yelena Sofronevich and Jacob Archbold, Andrew Harris and group editor, and Jacob Jarvis is lead producer. Our theme music comes from Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.